Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. So this is the first year ever, ever in my whole life that I've done my Christmas shopping before Christmas Eve. I finished it all yesterday, and now I'm just waiting for Amazon to deliver it all. (laughs) So they better come when I'm in. (laughs) Um, We're in this series, as you know, Rediscovering Christmas, and Mark last week spoke about joy and peace, and this week um, I'm going to speak about um, self-control. I thought I was anyway. Ah, there we are. Rediscovering self-control. These are fruits of the Spirit. And I don't think there's anybody in here, including me, who doesn't struggle with self-control in some area of their life. There are some areas of my life where I am incredibly disciplined. No matter what you said or did, I will not go over that boundary. I'm very disciplined in many areas of my life. But like all of you, there are areas of your life where you just wish you had more self-control. My biggest weakness is food. I love food. I can eat when I'm hungry. I can eat when I'm full. I can eat in the day, I can eat in the night. I can, you know, I I just love food. And coming up to Christmas, I'm getting nervous already about what the scales will look like in January. And I have to be so disciplined. There will be so much food in our house, it's almost obscene. You know, and some of the younger people in my family are a bit more disciplined than me. And um, uh, so I'm hoping and I'm preparing and I'm girding my loins that each morning when I wake up over the next couple of weeks, I have to say, God, help me in this area because I know I'll feel awful if I eat too much. So all of us will know that, that we need self-control in our life. And Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's trying to help the believers to understand the difference between the desires of the flesh that are opposed to the working of the Spirit in our lives. And he outlines the war between the flesh and the Spirit. And we can read in Galatians, these are the desires of the sinful nature. And Galatians 5.21 says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you look down that list, you may identify for yourself. You might think, oh, no, I'd never be like that. But you might identify some and you think, yeah, you know, I think we can all have selfish ambition at times. We can all want our own way. We can all want to plough through with our own desires and ambitions. But... These are, the, these are the desires of the flesh. So before we are believers, before we have any uh, reason, if you like, to even want to change our behaviours, this is how we are. This is our default human nature. Um, but God has given us another way, and he's given us the fruit of the Spirit. And it says in verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And so if I look back over the 42 years that I've been a believer, I can see that those behaviours on the left-hand column are much, much less than they ever were. Not that I was indulging in all of them, but the column on the right, I can see some of those in my life that I never had before. And if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you can do the same. Fruit takes time to grow. When I became a believer, there were some behaviours that I instantly dropped because I just lost my desire for them. But there were other 
uh, other behaviours that I had to really work on and really think about and really intentionally try to reduce in my life and then open myself up to the Holy Spirit, to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Who doesn't want those? But you know, the truth of the matter is that the one you feed the most grows the most. And so unless you intentionally decide that you want to switch sides, nothing will change. And, and it's God's intention that actually we become, that we allow him as we yield to him, that we allow him to develop those fruits in us. And fruits take time. You know, we can think that we live in an instant world. We want it all tomorrow. It doesn't happen like that. Fruit takes time to grow. And I'm a person who I journal, and every year in January I sit down, and I've done this for most of my Christian life. I sit down in January and I write down my objectives for the following year in my spiritual life. Where do I want to be? What do I want to do? And I look back over the previous year, and I think, how many of those things have I achieved? How many of those things have changed in my life? Do I need to carry some of them forward into 2020? Do I need to set new things? Because how do you know if you're growing if you've got nothing to compare it to? And it's so important in our Christian life. There's no such thing as standing still. We need to be moving forward and growing fruit in our life and got, because there's a purpose for that. And I'll explain to you and show you the purpose of that. But the problem is, and we'll all recognize this, is that there's a fight that goes on between the lust of the flesh and the desire of the spirit in our soul. And I don't think there's one person here who won't recognize that, that you want to do what's right and good, but you don't do it. And the things you don't want to do, you find yourself doing. And Paul understood that, and Paul recognizes that. And we have to recognize that too. Every single one of us will experience this pull inside of us of what to do, whether to do right, whether to do wrong, whether to just allow the desires of our flesh to be fulfilled, or whether we're actually going to allow the spirit to control us, because one of them will control us. If we don't go one way, we will go the other. There's no middle ground. And Paul describes it really aptly for us. So what is self-control then? Self-control in the Greek is the word... Um, en, 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 I wrote it down phonetically somewhere. <laughs> Enkratea. That's right, thank you. Enkratea. And en means in and kratos means power or control or power over oneself. Moderation, discipline, balance, temperance. Or self-control. So it's suggesting control or restraint of one's passions, one's appetites, and one's desires. Um, <clears throat> the ability to exercise um, self-control or restraint is absolutely crucial in all areas of our life. Um, we just um, had that um, on, on features about the debt problem, about CAP. If we don't take control over our finances, we will all end up in debt. Um, if we don't take control over our eating and our diet, and I speak to myself, I will end up two or three times the size I am now. That's inevitable. That's a consequence. If I don't exercise, I definitely will end up two or three times the size I am now. And, if, and in work and in all areas of our life, we have to have an area of discipline and self-control if we want to progress in that area, don't we? We know that. It's true. Um, it's a hard thing to do. I'm not saying it's easy. But if you look back in history, some of the um, denominations were founded on that basis of, of, of temperance and of self-control. If you think about the, 
Methodists in the 1700s, you know, they were very much against um, alcohol because alcohol was becoming a, a social sort of drink and it was causing drunkenness. And so, <clears throat> you know, it was disrupting family life and families were falling apart. And then with the Industrial Revolution and people starting to use heavy equipment, you know, they needed to have a solution because you can't have drunk people managing heavy industrial equipment. And so their answer to it <clears throat> was abstinence. Well, we know that abstinence is not the answer, but you will remember there was a temperance movement, any of you who know a bit of history, and they even had the drunkard's Bible. Um, and it was mostly women who were in the temperance movement. Why? Because women were powerless in those days. But it was women who suffered the consequences of men who were drunk. And they made up these songs, and they had a whole range of songs, such as, Drink nothing, boys, but water, and Father, bring home your money tonight. <laughs> In an effort for people who were illiterate, couldn't read and write, songs about, you know, how to manage and how to have self-control. And, <clears throat> um, and you know, if any of you who know anything about the Methodist movements, one of the things that they <clears throat> speak about or have modification in is, is um, drinking of alcohol. <clears throat> so what is self-control? Well, self-control is a delay is to delay short-term gratification in favour of long-term outcomes. How many of us like that? Every single one of us knows and understands short-term gratification. It is, an, it is a disease of our age. You know, when I was growing up, I was always, because I was part of a big family anyway, and we didn't have a lot of things, I was told, well, we just had to wait till we could afford it. You know, it, it was as simple as that. And so I, because I grew up with that philosophy, I've always been able to manage my finances because I don't buy what I can't afford. It's as simple as that. <clears throat> I know within a week or two I won't want it anyway, so I might just as well not buy it. <clears throat> but short-term gratification is a disease of our age because we do not think about long-term outcomes. And what we need to understand is that we need to invest in self-control. We need to invest what? Our cognitive, our brain. We need to engage our brain. We need to engage our emotions. And we need to look at our behavioural resources to achieve the desired outcomes. The ability to control one's own actions has to be age-appropriate. Clearly, you won't expect a child to manage their behaviours in a way that you would expect an adult, but you don't expect adults to behave in the way children do. And so we need to know what's age-appropriate, and we've got to engage our brain, we've got to engage our emotions, and we've got to look at our behavioural resources, the ability to control one's own actions... And so Paul says this, and we can all identify. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. We can all identify with that. That is a fact of the human nature. That is a fact of our sinful nature, which is why God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to transform us and to change us and to develop fruit in us. But rather than relying on willpower to resist temptation when it occurs, we have to prepare in advance to avoid it. I am already thinking about how I'm going to avoid overeating at Christmas. And you might think that's, <clears throat> you know, you haven't got to do that. Well, I'm glad you haven't got to do that. Maybe you've got another problem about how much you're going to drink over Christmas or how much you're going to do other things over Christmas. But, you know, I have to think about now 
It's no good waiting until someone's passing around the box of roses and it's sitting in front of me and I'm saying, yes, no, yes, no, I will, I won't, I will, I won't. I've got to think already. I'm just going to say, no, next. You know, you have to think about things in advance if you're going to avoid them. So the bedrock of character is self-discipline. And if we want to live a righteous life, a life that's right with God, we have to have a life that's based on self-control. Aristotle said this, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies, for the hardest victory is over self. The hardest thing to conquer is yourself. And that's why we focus on trying to conquer everybody else. (laughs) You know, leave everybody else out of it and think about how am I going to have victory over myself and over my behaviours and self-control. Joyce Meyer says this, which is very interesting. She says, we are never going to enjoy stability. We are never going to enjoy spiritual maturity until we learn how to do what's right when it feels wrong. And every time you do what's right by a decision of your will using discipline and self-control, you go beyond how you feel. And the more painful it is to your flesh, the more you're growing spiritually at that particular moment. If your flesh is complaining, good, because that means your spirit is winning. So when the tin of sweets comes round and my flesh is going, you really want one of those, I know that as I pass the tin on, my flesh, my spirit has won. Something doesn't come back that way. <laughs> Everything is a battle. But if your flesh is feeling pinched and painful, it's because your spirit is warring with it. And we can't go always on how we feel. We have to, because I know when I go to bed that night after stuffing my face, I'm going to feel terrible and I won't be able to sleep. So we have to recognize that bringing discipline into our lives is not easy and it is going to be painful. But the more one you feed the most, will grow the most. So the more I cause pain to my flesh, the more my spirit will grow and the more discipline and the more self-control I will have. What we need to remember is that lack of self-control is really about giving control to something else or someone else. If I don't control myself, something or somebody will. That tin of sweets will control me. I will be subject to it. Whatever controls you you are a slave to. And so it's important that we recognise that it's not just a question of saying, oh, it doesn't matter, I'll stay on neutral territory. No, you won't. Because if you're not in control, something or someone else is. And you are subject to that. And you are are a servant to that thing. And so it's important that we recognise that. Um, One of the tragedies in the Western culture is that we have put aside the knowledge of God that he has made available to us. This is God's word. Every household has a Bible. In fact, unbelievers will have a Bible. This is the, still the, um, the best, the biggest selling book in the world. So everybody will have one. But we actually, the biggest problem in the West is that we have put aside the knowledge of God. And some research that's been done in America shows that only one in five churchgoers, um, one in five churchgoers never read their Bible. So if we look around this room and if we say, right, all the people sitting in this area here, you guys, you've never read your Bible or you don't read your Bible, 
but you proclaim to be a, a believer. And 45% read it once or twice a week. So here we are, we've got this group here who are reading their Bible once or twice a week. We've probably only got this number of people, if these statistics are anything close, that are actually really studying the Word of God and taking it as a part of their life. It's quite frightening, isn't it? Because if we don't read it, how do we know what to follow? And the UK Bible Society has done a survey on, among children and found that most could not identify common Bible stories. When given a list, almost one in three chose, didn't, didn't know about the nativity. Um, over half, nearly 60%, didn't know about, sorry, didn't know about Jonah and the whale. And the parents didn't do much better either. Around 30% of parents didn't know about Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, or the Good Samaritan. And to make matters worse, 27% think Superman is or might be a Bible story. More than one in three believers, the same about Harry Potter, and more than half, 54%, believe the Hunger Games is or might be a Bible story. But we've already said, identified, this group of people don't even read their Bible. So how would they even know what's in it? And you guys, you only read it once or twice a week. So how much is that impacting your life? We better look to these people over here to know what's in Scripture. There is a lack of biblical literacy. But the, the ironic thing is, and I'm sure it would be the same if I asked you, by contrast, most Christians desire to become more mature followers of Jesus Christ and the Lifeway research found 90% of churchgoers desire to please and honour Jesus in all they do. How can that be possible? You know, we never achieve anything by desire, only by action. We'll all say, I'm sure if I asked you, do you really want to serve God? Do you really want to please him? You'd all put up your hand. But actually, if you're not reading the Bible and if you only read it occasionally, how's that going to happen? It's not going to happen. Good intentions never achieve anything. That's the reality. It has to be intentional. It just doesn't add up. We can say what we like, but we've actually got to put it into practice. We have to recognise and take responsibility for control over our thought life and to line it up with the word of God. And it takes discipline and self-control. But no one else is going to do it for you. You do it or it doesn't happen. I do it or it doesn't happen. So we really take time to stop and think. So I'm just going to give you a few minutes lesson on thinking. Okay. How often do you take time out just to stop and think? How, you know, I am working really hard this year now since I've retired to eliminate hurry from my life and busyness. Those are the two things that I'm trying to get out of my life um, and take time to stop and think. So let's think about thinking for a minute. What does it mean to think? Because the Bible has said that you know, we need to engage with our brain. That's okay. <clears throat> we need to engage our brain. So what does it mean to think? Well, the first thing I've put here is we need to search out what is true and what is not true. We need to use our brain to search out what is true and what is not true. So how are you guys over here going to search out what is true and what is not true? Well, you don't read this, so you won't know. I could come over here and I could say, mm, you guys, perhaps you might know what's true and what's not true. But any of you, please don't try and speak into my life because I won't know what it's founded on. 
I could count on multiple hands the number of people who've tried to speak into my life over the years because it's either what they want for me or it's what they want for themselves. It's not based on this. So if I was looking for people who maybe could help me and advise me, I would look to people who I know are reading their word and who are praying and who are seeking spiritual depth in their life. Otherwise, who knows where it will come from? Where will that knowledge come from? So we need to know to search out what is true and what is not. And unless we're going to say this is true, then if we are going to say it's true, this is our source. What else do we need our brain for? To recognize misleading falsehoods. So important. So when I was working, I worked with a guy who was technically my boss. He was much younger than me. We got on so well, and, but we worked merely side by side because we had different skill sets. And he would often come to me or regularly come to me and he'd say, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, this happened, that happened, I've heard this, I've heard that. And he'd, so he'd say, well, what are you going to do about it? And I'd say, well, first thing I'm going to do is investigate because I don't know whether that's true or not. And so I would do my investigation, and nine times out of ten, it wasn't true. It was somebody's beef or somebody's upset or somebody had elaborated the truth. or some. And when I left this year, he came up to me, and we worked together for five years, and he came up to me and said, you know what, the biggest thing you've ever taught me is to find out the facts. Always find out the facts. Don't, don't, don't jump to conclusions. Don't make assumptions. But find out the facts. We need to take time to recognise falsehoods. If you think Harry Potter's in the Bible and the Hunger Games, I mean, really, you know, we need... I've heard people quote old wives' tales and they tell me they're in Scripture. They're not. You know, we need to know what is truth and we need to get rid of falsehoods. What else do we need our brain for? Well, we need to have the ability to pull down strongholds in our mind. You know, we set ourselves up and through life and life's experiences, the people we mix with and all sorts have strongholds in our mind about things which we 100% believe are true and they're not. But they drive our lives. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs that God gives common sense to the wise. That's why not everyone has common sense. Common sense is not common, but God gives it to the wise. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to know in our minds. I remember many years ago, I went to the osteopath and um, we became friends over the years and with my back. And she said to me, one day I was just talking to her and she challenged me and she said, do you believe this because you believe it or do you believe this because your parents taught it you? And I thought, whoa, I believe this because my parents taught it me. I need to examine it and decide, do I really believe it for myself? And it's the same with everything. You know, if we're going to, we will have set thoughts and set patterns of thinking in our mind that drive us in a certain direction. The Bible says very clearly in Corinthians that we need to pull down... Every knowledge that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So it's really important that we spend time to think, why do I believe this? Why do I know this? Is it in here? Is it just part of life and my culture? And if it's not in here and it's setting itself up against the knowledge of God and it's telling me lies, because many of us believe lies and live lies, then we need to be able to pull it down, but we need to set aside the time to think it through. We need to take time to ponder meaning and implication of choices. You know, we need to spend time... We, so often we don't think of the long-term outcomes of our short-term gains. And we need to spend time to ponder. I love to ponder. 
I love to ponder and to think about God and God's word and what does it mean and what does it mean for the bigger picture? So often we just look at what's in front of us. But actually, what does it mean for the bigger picture in my life, in your life, in your family life, in the church life, in the world? You know, we need to sometimes ponder and think, God has given us a brain. Our brain is incredible. It's an incredible piece of kit. We will never be able to replicate it, no matter how good an engineer you are. Our brain is incredible, and we need to take time in silence and in solitude with God to ponder things through and to examine them in the light of God's word. And the last thing is I've got here is that we need to exercise our freedom of where to set our thoughts. The ultimate freedom that God has given us is to think whatever we want to think. And it's so important, and the Bible gives us a clue. Paul says, set your affections where? On things above, not on things of the earth. So it's so important that we choose. I'm not going to think like this. I'm not going to think like that. I'm going to think according to God's word. But you guys don't know it, so you won't even know where to set your thoughts. If you don't know it, where are you going to set them? Well, you're going to set them according to... I, had, I went for a drink this week with um, some old workmates and I said to, I was chatting with one a young girl. And I said, oh, did you watch the Kardashians? And I went, oh, no. <laughs> oh, I couldn't bear to watch it. I think I'd rather... Well, anyway, <clears throat> you know, if it's the Kardashians that are influencing your life, man, how sad is that? <laughs> you know, if you're not going to be influenced by this, you're going to be influenced by something something that's popular, something that's influential. And it'll probably be something off the television or an athlete or a pop star or someone who's behaving badly. You know, and it's so important <clears throat> that we exercise our freedom of where to set our thoughts. Many times I think to myself, no, nope, I'm not going to think about that. No, nope, I'm not going to look at that. No, nope, I'm going to walk away from that. I'm not going to set my affections on that. I'm going to set my affections on things above. So how do I know how to do that? Well, I'll go into the resource and I'll find something to set my affections on. And Paul warns us in his letter to Timothy about, oh, sorry, Hosea says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So my people, without understanding, will come to ruin. You know, we can't just say, oh, well, I didn't know. We have a responsibility to know, and we have a responsibility to, to get the knowledge that we need to understand. And Paul says to Timothy that in the last days, this is how people are going to be. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. This is how people are today without self-control, but having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So you guys over here who come to church every Sunday and raise your hands, you've got a form of godliness, but you haven't got any power. And you people over here who come to church every Sunday and you raise your hands and you say and do the right things. Well, how much power have you got in your life? I'd like to know. But you people over here, I would expect that you have got some power in your life. What is the point in having a Christian life with no power? What's the point in that? This is a life-changing gospel and a walk with God. And so he says that we have a form of God. The church in this country has a form of godliness and no power. And if it did, we would see a drastic change in this nation. But it has to begin in the church. We have to decide that we want to be people of power. 
There is a terrible epidemic of Bible illiteracy in this country. And it's easy to look at that list and say it doesn't apply to me. But actually, the question we as believers should be asking ourselves is how much power is there in my life? That's the evidence. That's the evidence. When we fail to take control of our thoughts and actions, we throw off restraint. This nation has thrown off restraint in so many areas. And with each generation, we throw off more and more restraint. And we've come to a time now where we seem to think that we should be able to justify all behaviours. In medicine, oh, we've come up with some great answers about how genetics has caused all these behaviours. It's just an excuse half the time. We're looking for reasons to justify our behaviours instead of looking to modify our behaviours. And why has that happened? This is why it is happening. And Christians, it is so subtle and we need to understand this. Dallas Willard, who's a good, um, a, a hero of faith for me, he's a man who's he's died now. He was um, a philosopher and he was a theologian. And he spends a lot of time thinking. He said, in today's world, we are expected to be tolerant of all people, such that we have lost the ability to declare moral knowledge. And it is so true. We've become afraid to say what's right and wrong. And I know within my family, when I have this discussion, who are you to say, they would say to me, who are you to say what is right or wrong? But the thing is that God has not stopped saying what is right or wrong. And he says in Jeremiah, he says, Therefore, I, if thou return, then I will bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. If you will take forth the precious from the vile, you will be my mouthpiece. If you will separate what is good and what is right from what is bad and what is evil, then you'll be my mouthpiece. God is not trying to justify all behaviours. God is still saying we need to be able to separate them out and we need to be able to. That word vile means moral looseness. God is saying we must be able to separate what is precious to God from what is vile, what is moral looseness. And otherwise we can't be his mouthpiece. And most, most of the church has lost sight of truth in order to be seen to be keeping up with the spirit of this age. And we need to wake up to the fact that we are being subtly duped into moving away from the truth. We're caught up in a zeitgeist. Do you know what a zeitgeist is? It's the spirit of this age. And it was a a phrase that was um, used by a German philosopher. And it means this. It means the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. It's a spirit of the age. It's a spirit of the times. It's, it's recognised as an invisible agent or a force dominating characteristics. And that is exactly what is going on at this time. And one of the characteristics of this time is that we must be tolerant of all people. Now, I absolutely agree we should be tolerant of all people. I'm not against that. We must embrace diversity. But what has happened is, is that we have made differences into values. And when you differences become values, others are not right or wrong. And this eliminates the knowledge of right or wrong. So what we have done is that we in society is that the person and the behaviour have come one, become one. And we have said in society, we must tolerate this. 
Otherwise, who are the bigots? We are the bigots. But Jesus never, ever lumped people and behaviours together. He separated them. So yes, we must love people. Yes, we must be tolerant of people. Yes, we must be um, supportive and helpful and loving of all people. But we're not to tolerate behaviours. And the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age at the moment says that we have put people and behaviours together and we must be tolerant of them. It's a trick. (laughs) And it's not the way that God works and it's not the way that... God operates. Yes, Jesus sat down with prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and sick people and sinners, but he spoke out about their behaviours. He said to the woman at the well, go away and sin no more. He he spoke to people that he healed and he said, don't do it again. You know, Jesus addressed behaviours. He embraced people. And in church, we've got to embrace people, but stand against behaviours. And of course, there's a very delicate way to do that because we want to show love and expression to people, but we want to show them a better way. But if we're not operating in that better way ourselves, how are we going to show them? Because people look for examples, don't they? People look for examples. They've got to see an example in you and me. We cannot avoid truth as laid down in God's word. But what we have done in the church is that rather than address these things, we just set it aside. And we just say, look, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It does matter. And we need to get on our knees before God in this nation. The truth, Dallas Willard said this, the truth is like the sighting on a gun. It helps you to hit the target. You know, if we line ourselves up with the truth and with the wisdom of God, we can change our behaviours and we can help others too as well. Why do we want to change our behaviours? Because when we know the truth, the truth will make you free. We don't want to be in bondage. We're in bondage to those behaviours because they control us. But we want to be free. And God wants us to be free. But you know, truth doesn't take into consideration our thoughts and feelings. And most people are thoughts and feelings led. I think, I feel. No, truth is truth. And we need to be able to separate thoughts and feelings from truth. Because truth can be manipulated by thoughts and feelings. The truth hurts sometimes, doesn't it? I've known that myself. The truth hurts. And if I allow that truth to be dissolved away because of my thoughts and feelings and it hurts me, then I'm never going to be able to absorb the truth. Truth is truth and it cannot be watered down by thoughts and feelings. Corinthians says this. It says that, Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that who, those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is what? Temperate in all things. How, now they do, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run this, not with uncertainty. Thus I, I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others... I myself should become disqualified. You know, we're running a race and we need to be running it as though we want to win. And any athlete who is competing for the Olympics, seeing themselves on the podium with a gold medal around their neck will be temperate in all things. They'll be careful with their eating. They'll be out running in the rain. They'll be doing all those things. Why? To receive a goal, to receive a prize, a prize that's imperishable. We're doing it for things that are of much, much greater value. And Paul says, I beat my body. Joyce Meyer says, hurt your flesh. 
hurt your flesh, and then you know that your, your spirit is growing. It's so important. Self-control will hold our appetites in check. <clears throat> Galatians 5.24 says this, for those who, uh, who are Christ has crucified, sorry, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. You can't stay in neutral ground. If you want to put to death the passions and desires of the flesh, you've got to start walking in God. You've got to start living in God. That is active. That is intentional in order to move from what was on that left-hand column into that right-hand column. Proverbs tells us this. It says that a person without self-control is like a city without, with broken down walls. In the message, it says a person without self-control is like a house with its windows and its doors knocked out. What are you like if your windows and doors are knocked out? Well, first of all, you've got no security. Anything can come in and steal from you without that security. Anyone can come in and influence you if your doors and windows are knocked out. Anyone can come in and control you if you haven't got that discipline and that self-control in your life. And if we choose to set aside truth about good and evil and right and wrong, we leave, us, we leave ourselves unbounded and uncontrolled. And if we're uncontrolled, well, something else, someone else will control us. We know that. So it's important that we build up our own walls, that we put our windows and our doors back in, and that we have that security of knowing that um, we have the control over ourselves. In closing, I want to, I was reminded as I was doing this message, and I was so heartened by this, that Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who is sympathetic to our weaknesses. We have a God who loves us and who says, I know it's tough, I know it's hard, I know it's understand, but what I'm asking of you is possible. And I, I love that scripture in Hebrews because I know that whenever I trip up or whenever things are not going well for me, that God is sympathetic towards me and that God knows my heart and that God understands that life on this earth is not easy. But it struck me as I was preparing this, this verse here, that we, are, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? To show the power is from God and not from us. You see, the emphasis is on the treasure, not on the vessel. And it's so important that if we are going to show the world the power of God, that we've got some power in our lives. Otherwise, what are we showing? What are we showing? And if those statistics that I gave you are anywhere near true, there may only be a handful of people over here who are showing any power. And if you replicate that across the church in this nation, where is the power in the church. And why is it? It's because we can't be bothered to get into this. It's because we can't be bothered to seek God. Because we're too busy, because we're too hurried, because we don't see it as a priority in our lives. The emphasis is on the treasure, not on the vessel. And there are many, many things that can come into, into our lives to become a vessel and a vessel can be anything that grabs your attention and your effort. We can become 100% vessel. We can be 100% vessel and no treasure because we've allowed other things in the world to take away our attention and to take away our... And it can be even the best things. You could be serving in the house. You could have five different jobs here in the church, but you could be sitting over there when you're not doing anything. <clears throat> and... 
we need to ensure that actually we are giving enough time. I've heard countless people, oh, I'm too busy, I can't come to this, I can't. I'm too busy, I can't pray, I haven't got time to read. Well, if you haven't got time to read and you haven't got time to pray, then don't bother because nothing else will matter. Nothing else will make sense. We will best become a 100% vessel with a gift that God has put in there, a treasure that is hidden in there. Our opinions, our programs, our habits, our behaviours, all of those things we can substitute for connection with God. There's nothing that you can substitute a connection with God. What is the most important and valuable thing you could ever give to another person? Time. The most valuable thing I have to give anybody is time. So why not time for God? Why not time for God? We're coming to the end of a year. We're coming to a new year. Why not think, God, next year, I need to lay down some disciplines in order for me to have more time with you. No one said self-control was easy, but lack of knowledge. Without, with lack of knowledge, people will perish. Aristotle said this. He said, what lies in our power to do also lies in our power not to do. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's a road. It's a walk. And in closing, I just want to recommend two books to you. Because if you're struggling in these areas and you think, how can I, what can I read? What can help me? There, I, I, I have read a lot of Dallas Willard's books and he has influenced me in many ways because he's a thinker. And his two books that I would recommend to you is The Spirit of the Disciplines. If, if you're looking for a Christmas present, Spirit of the Disciplines is huge. But his Renovation of the Heart in Daily Practice is my copy. As you can see, hugely thumbed. I'm in this book a lot. And this book is actually 61 small chapters of only two or three pages. So you can use it as a daily reading book every two months. And if you did it next year, you'd have done it six times. You know, and I'm always looking in this book and I'm always looking for more ways to get discipline and to be moving from that left side to that right side. You know, this, he was a great man and, and he and um, great teaching. And this is a book that would really help you if you want to try and get more discipline in your life. Why? So that we can shine forth the glory of God in the vessel that he's given us to a desperately needy world. Amen. Thank you.